What exactly is postmodernism? What do postmodernists believe? And where did postmodernism come from? These are things that we're going to talk about today on BibleStudyPodcast.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again. You are listening to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today is Friday, November 20th, 2009. I'm your host, Toby Logsdon, as always, uh, and I do apologize for not getting this lesson up yesterday. Hope you guys are doing well, but over here, we're a little bit cold. Um, I told you guys, uh, I don't know, I guess, I guess it was in Monday's lesson, that it's just really cold here right now in Arkansas. It's been cold. We were, uh, you know, we, we had a chance of having snow uh, one of the past few nights. Anyway, we were wondering why is it so cold in the house, and it turns out that the thermostat wasn't working. The heater wasn't working. So we did what anybody who's uh, who's freezing would do. We called our landlord, and uh, well, it's taking them a few days basically to fix our heater. Uh, I think they misdiagnosed something yesterday. He was out here for several hours yesterday working on it and uh, didn't didn't bother to, to test it before he left. I asked him, do you want me to test this? Uh, and he said, no, if anything, you're going to need to turn it down because it's getting ready to crank on you. So, uh, so yesterday, uh, during the afternoon, he was here, so I didn't get a chance to record the lesson. But uh, yeah, that's why. And we're freezing here, but we do have a couple, um, you know, uh, room heaters or space heaters, and we do have a fireplace. So uh, I've never actually had to use a real fireplace before with a chimney and everything. So it's just one of those things that uh, I guess you learn to appreciate all the more, all those things that you know you've taken for granted all your lives. And uh, you know, I, I really do kind of enjoy lighting a fireplace and sitting by the fireplace and reading. Uh, that's some pretty fun stuff. But anyway, if you guys are uh, are with me on Facebook, you know exactly. Um, what I've been going through, <laughs> and uh, so you you knew that yesterday's lesson wasn't going to be up, and so I'm sorry to get it up a day late, but uh, that is why I didn't have a chance to record it yesterday because we had uh, uh, heating technician uh, problems. <laughs> anyway, I did want to let you guys know that there will be no lessons next week. Next week is Thanksgiving week, and so my kids are off all week next week. Uh, this is the first place I think I've ever lived where they got a whole week off for Thanksgiving, but yeah, good for them. Um, but I have a, a book proposal that is due in two weeks, two weeks from today, actually. So I'm going to spend next week uh, refining it and refining it and refining it so that uh, I can hopefully mail it off a week from today. Get it there a couple days early, you know, uh, trying to make a good impression. But uh, yeah, so that's what I'll be doing next week. But I do hope you guys have a great Thanksgiving. We do have so much to be thankful for. And uh, it's awesome to have a day where we can remember all the things that we're thankful for. So anyway, we'll resume uh, not this coming Monday, but the Monday after that with our regularly scheduled Romans lesson. Anyway, uh, you are listening to BibleStudyPodcast.org, and today we're starting a study called Deconstructing the Deconstructors. And this is a study on the emergent church. 
Well, we talked last week, uh, kind of in a prelude to this whole series, about how we can know things. There are some things that we can know through reason alone. Uh, but postmodernism denies that. Uh, the influence of postmodernism has reached our churches as well. And the result is that, um, you know, the result is something that we refer to as the emergent church or the emergent movement. Well, one of the key tenets of postmodern thinking is the denial, as we saw last week, the denial of the possibility of objective knowledge. And some will go so far as to deny the existence of objective absolute knowledge altogether, while others will instead affirm the existence of this knowledge, this objective knowledge, but they deny our ability to have that knowledge. And obviously, this ideology, this, this philosophy implodes since Either way, one must have objective knowledge of the fact that uh, either objective knowledge doesn't exist or that we're unable to grasp objective knowledge. Either way, that person making that claim has to have objective knowledge. But if one has objective knowledge of this fact, then the statement itself is false since the statement is implicitly affirming the very principle or the very thing that it's denying. Well, it can seem to be something of a mystery to consider that so many people actually believe this stuff. I mean, these are intelligent, uh, academic, intellectual people, and this type of thinking has given rise to postmodern slogans that most of you will probably recognize. Slogans like, well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me, or it's wrong for you to force your morality on others. And we hear people uh, ranging from university professors to the common high school student, you know, saying these types of things. And we hear these types of things on television shows and in movies, and people, by and large, have embraced it wholeheartedly. Well, it's one thing when much of the secular world is spouting you know, garbage like this, but the church is in a lot of trouble when Christians start doing the same thing while applying this philosophy, or pseudo-philosophy, because it's really uh, a baseless philosophy, but when they start applying this philosophy to their theology, one might wonder how so many intelligent, educated people came to embrace such an ideology. Well, in order to develop a, a full understanding of what postmodernism is, we have to first understand what modernism is, really. But there's a problem there, and that is that in order to understand what modernism is, one must first understand what rationalism is and empiricism is. In fact, there's no easy way if we're being honest, to fully understand how this philosophy came about without first doing just a, a very brief study, and I mean very brief uh, study, on the history of human thought, the history of philosophy. Now, it's true that there are volumes and volumes that have been written on this subject, and uh, it's not really possible to cover every school of um, philosophical thought without spending months studying this subject. So what we're going to try to do here today in this lesson is just hit some of the more significant points throughout the history of philosophy. If you look at uh, history as a landscape, we're just going to be hitting the peaks of the mountains, uh, the highest mountains. You know, philosophy has always had to do with us, with people, and with our relationship to the world around us. Uh, the earliest thinkers attempted to answer questions like, what is everything? And some people concluded that everything is composed of water. Uh, ironically, it's kind of funny, I guess, uh, it was a fisherman who first proposed that everything was made out of water. 
uh, I guess for him, <laughs> that would seem uh, likely. But, you know, some also said that, uh, that we can't say what the world really is because as soon as we do, it's already changed into something else. Uh, and some applied math to the world in order to better understand it, which led to one philosopher concluding that it's mathematically impossible to get from one location to another since there are an infinite number of points between two locations. Uh, And so uh, considering the fact that there are an infinite number of points, we can't get from one location to the other. Well, it wasn't long before uh, observation of the world around us combined with this mathematical uh, application to the world led to the great Greek philosophers and logic soon began to be discovered. And keep in mind that just like gravity, logic wasn't invented, it was discovered in the sense that humanity began to understand and put a name to it. They began to to label what it was. Well, enter the three most significant names in ancient philosophy, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Uh, Socrates became famous for his discourses and for dis, uh, for developing the uh, the Socratic method and for his teachings on knowledge, virtues, and um, and ethics. And he taught Socrates taught that all of humanity should strive for the same virtues. He believed that evil stems from ignorance; that it's not really intentional. He believed that nobody willfully does wrong to other people. Uh, and he had a lot of followers and students, one of those uh, students being a man named Plato. Well, Plato took his teachers, he took uh, Socrates's ideas on knowledge and virtues and tried to explain them, tried to justify them. After all, where did, uh, where did virtues come from? His answer was that there are these eternally existent forms, and that's what he called them, forms. That's a key word in ancient Greek philosophy. Uh, there are these eternally existent forms after which human beings uh, were designed. And these forms were ideas or ideals which were to be pursued universally by people from every culture. These forms were objective. Uh, they were absolute true for all people in all times and places. Well, like Socrates, uh, Plato developed a large following, and he began teaching. In fact, he founded the first Western school of higher education or higher learning. One of Plato's students was a man by the name of Aristotle. Uh, Aristotle affirmed Plato's theory of there being these universal forms, but his ethics were really based on a combination of deductive and inductive reasoning, whereas Plato's ethics were strictly based on deductive reasoning. Uh, Deductive reasoning, by the way, is airtight. For example, if P, then Q, P is true, therefore Q is true. Uh, Inductive reasoning isn't quite so solid. With inductive reasoning, you would say, uh, for example, that every time you've dropped a pen, uh, it's fallen to the ground. And therefore, since you've seen a consistent pattern, and you've never seen anything other than that consistent pattern, you conclude that the pen will fall to the ground every time you drop it. That's inductive reasoning. Uh, Despite this slight difference in their approach to ethics, Um, Both Plato and Aristotle believed that there are certain values, certain virtues, which all of humanity should continually be striving toward. They believed that all people, in all places, and in all times, should see the value of traits like honesty, commitment, courage, 
justice, and wisdom, and that these traits should be pursued universally by all people since these virtues are a normative standard of what an upright, upstanding citizen looks like. Well, once a person has done some very basic uh, studying of ancient philosophy and the ancient philosophers, they'll have a new appreciation for Paul's writings as recorded in Scripture. Paul wasn't just a theologian. Absolutely not. He was also a student of philosophy. Uh, That fact is made very evident by the methods used by Paul in his reasoning and in his argumentation. He uses the same type of vocabulary that we find in the writings of Plato and Aristotle, such as form. Uh, like I just told you, you know, he put an, a heavy emphasis on the word form as well. Paul did. For example, in his letter to the Philippians, uh, chapter 2, verse 6, Paul writes that, quote, although Jesus existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of of men. He also wrote uh, in his first letter to the Thessalonians, he wrote, abstain from every form of evil. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 22. Now this is the same Greek word, the exact same Greek word that both Plato and Aristotle used. Eidos, which is uh, the word from which the English word idea is actually derived from. But note what Paul's saying here. Abstain from every form of evil. He's actually putting an emphasis on ethics, just like Plato and Aristotle did. See, Paul believed that there was a universally valid, universally applicable set of virtues that everyone, regardless of their culture, should constantly be in pursuit of. There was a certain goal toward which all believers should constantly be striving. Christ-likeness, right? That's the goal, to be like Christ. And that's why Paul wrote to the Ephesians that, quote, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to measure the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love... And I think he means objective truth there. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, Christ. That's from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. That's also uh, a great purpose statement for a church, by the way. Well, this was true, what Paul's writing here. He held this to be true for all believers in all places and in all times. This is objective truth that we're talking about. It wasn't just a cultural standard that Paul was trying to impose on his audience, obviously. Paul also developed a set of commands to his audience, which we might refer to as the one another commands. He said that believers should be, quote, devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. That's from Romans chapter 12, verse 10. He told his readers to, quote, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. That's from Romans chapter 12, verse 16. Now, when believers come together for communion, he told them that, quote, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. 
That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 33. These are all universal statements. These are all objective, absolute statements that Paul intended to be true for people of all times and all places, and they lead us to an understanding that the Christian faith isn't something that the believer does on their own. Rather, they emphasize the fact that Paul expected believers to be part of an active community of Christ followers. This is the principle around which New Testament ethics is centered. Now, a few hundred years later, a philosopher named Augustine entered the scene, and Augustine had studied the teachings of Plato prior to becoming a Christian. He was a student of philosophy throughout his entire life. And so he was heavily influenced by these teachings. Actually, on just a side note here, he was so influenced by uh, Plato's teachings that he would later believe that Plato was actually saved by his wisdom and knowledge. Anyway, Augustine would come to believe that Platonic philosophy was made complete by Christianity, and thus uh, he had this kind of neo-Platonic philosophy. Plato's writings also helped uh, Augustine develop an understanding of evil as uh, as being not a thing in and of itself, like it wasn't a, a substance in and of itself, but the lack of a thing, namely the good. So by the time that the, the Middle Ages came around, uh, Muslims had rediscovered the writings of Aristotle and began to apply this philosophy to their belief system. Uh, at the same time, much of Christianity was still leaning on the Neoplatonist teachings of Augustine. And as a result, Christianity was coming under fire while Islam was really beginning to take off. It really began to grow rapidly. So in response to the rapid spread of Islam, Thomas Aquinas attempted to bring Augustine's Neoplatonism and Aristotle's uh, philosophy, his logic, together in order to provide a more solid foundation for the ethics of Augustine. Now, by applying Aristotelian logic to Christian principles, Aquinas was actually able, he was successful in providing convincing justification for the teachings of the Bible, for the teachings of Christianity. And Islam, uh, as a result, began to recede. Now, it's important to note that Aquinas believed and taught that the principles of Christianity, such as love and such as uh, obedience to Christ, these were true for all people in all places and times. While he affirmed the depravity of humanity, he denied that people were so fallen that their ability to reason was completely gone completely lost. So because human ability to to reason was still intact, according to Aquinas, uh, he believed that it could be used in order to discover the truth of the principles taught by Christianity. Well, fast forward a couple hundred years. uh, By the time the Age of Enlightenment rolled around, the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas was still very highly esteemed, uh, by and large, and Christianity was still flourishing. In fact, people had embraced this rationalism uh, to the highest imaginable extent, so much so that um, many people were no longer seeing the necessity of Scripture for the purpose of finding truth. Uh, They believed that reason alone uh, was sufficient for that knowledge. Uh, René Descartes, for example, was one of the more influential thinkers of that time period, and he gained fame for his high emphasis on human reason, 
I think, therefore I am. You've probably all heard that one, right? I think, therefore I am. That was his conclusion. Anyway, this movement of rationalism uh, brought about the movement known as the Protestant Reformation, by the way. While the philosophers were saying that reason alone is sufficient for learning all truth, the reformers, guys like Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, they responded by placing a higher emphasis on Scripture than on a person's ability to reason. And that's where uh, sola scriptura comes from. But some people began to part ways with rationalism at this point because they questioned where our knowledge comes from. Uh, they believed that humanity had reasoning ability, uh, capacity to, to use our minds to reason, but they also held that reasoning wasn't the foundation of our knowledge. And this gave rise to a new school of thinking called empiricism. Well, according to empiricism, you guys have heard me talk about that a lot on the podcast, I know, uh, but according to empiricism, we know everything that we know by way of our senses. We know it by sight. We know it by sound, uh, touch, smell, taste. Uh, that's five, right? Anyway, yeah. Uh, and so science embraced empiricism since it gave testable methodology. It gave us a testable methodology, formulas, by which we could know truths about the world around us. And this was at the sacrifice of several other things which couldn't be empirically perceived, however, such as the existence of God. For the empiricists, it became irrational to believe in God, since all knowledge comes through our sensory uh, perception. So along with belief in God, beliefs such as ethics uh, were labeled as irrational, since we can't perceive with our senses whether something is morally good or morally uh, evil. And this type of knowledge, uh, you know, it has to come through reason, and reason alone can justify ethics. Only reason can justify ethics. So empiricism led to the rise of scientific methodology, but it also led to skepticism. And this is made evident in uh, David Hume, who attempted to create a solid foundation for empiricism through his writings. And David Hume taught that we can only know things to be true in uh, one of two possible ways. First of all, you know, we could know something to be true if it's true by its definition. Uh, in other words, we know that a bachelor is unmarried since a bachelor, by definition, is unmarried. Uh, we know that a square has four equal sides. We know that two plus two equals four, etc. These are examples of things that are true by definition. We could also know something to be true through our sensory perception, according to David Hume. And this led to Hume making a somewhat famous argument against the possibility of miracles. According to Hume, the only way that we can uh, know what's moral or immoral is through our passions, which, uh, which are different from one individual to the next. And this is what is referred to as modernism. This led to modernism. Well, Immanuel Kant came along, and he developed a philosophical system based on the combination of rationalism and empiricism. Otherwise, there would be no way to know if God or moral truths exist or not. Well, he did believe that God existed, by the way. Uh, Immanuel Kant did. His downfall, however, was in giving too much ground to empiricism. He agreed that all truth comes to us through the senses, uh, and so thus reason was secondary. So he couldn't prove that God existed, but he did think that God did exist. He just said, I can't know for sure if God exists. Uh, and so this was agnosticism. Uh, that's what Immanuel Kant uh, and his philosophy led to. So according to Immanuel Kant's line of reasoning, you know, we can only know things as we perceive them to be. We can't know something in and of itself. In other words, 
uh, we can know something subjectively. Why can't we know something objectively? It's because, according to Kant, we can't put the thing in and of itself in our minds. In order for us to know something as it really is, it must become one with our mind. And since that's not possible, neither is objective knowledge about reality. And this was a humongous step away from modernism in the direction of postmodernism. And let me give you an example of this. Uh, my cell phone, for example. I can't know for sure, I can't know that I know anything about my cell phone unless I can make it one with my mind. And I can't do that, so obviously I don't really know anything about my cell phone. Well, Kant wasn't about to abandon objective truth entirely. Uh, while his philosophy did kind of negate the possibility of universal truths, uh, he knew that. He didn't want to give that up, but he knew that that's what his philosophy implied. And so thus he, uh, he believed that we have to act as if the things that we subjectively believe to be true are objectively true. We have to treat what we know subjectively as if it's objective knowledge. In order to do this, however, we have to make a distinction between facts, which uh, are provided through you know, empiricism, empirical means of uh, scientific experimentation, and we have to distinguish that from beliefs, which is what religious truths were necessarily reduced to. Uh, beliefs, personal opinions, whatever you want to call it, that's what it was. There's a distinction between a belief and fact for Kant. Anyway, the philosophy of Kant didn't go uncontested. Uh, a lot of philosophers, uh, a lot of thinkers, such as Nietzsche, uh, you've probably heard of him, refused to believe that we're stuck behind our senses, so to speak. Uh, instead of relying only on our senses for knowledge of the world, these new thinkers, these existentialists, uh, believed that language had something to do with how we know the world. They believed that we were trapped inside of, and thus limited by, language and cultural constructs. And so thus our understanding of the world around us is shaped by the way our language allows us to understand the world. And that means that there are different worlds for different people, for different communities. And these different worlds each have their own sets of truths and values. And it had been largely believed that modernism would lead to, uh, would lead to the inevitable improvement of humanity, that we would become morally better, but after two brutal wars in the 20th century, the appeal of modernism began to fade quickly. I mean, obviously, people weren't becoming more civilized as a result of modernism, and so thus, people began turning away from the teachings of modernism, and this was really accelerated uh, and accentuated by some of the, the famous political and religious scandals of the second half of the 20th century, people began to grow suspicious of people who were in power. Uh, what was Nixon really trying to cover up? If people been covering stuff up all along, what was America really doing in Vietnam? Were all Roman Catholic priests pedophiles? I mean, people began to ask these types of questions. And finally, we saw the importance of language come into play when our president, Bill Clinton, came forward saying things like, well, I smoked marijuana without inhaling. Uh, nonsense like that. Or, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. That is Monica Lewinsky. I mean, here he was playing mind games and word games with people, and he was getting away with it. People didn't know what to think. See, this brought linguistic ambiguity right out into the spotlight. And so thus, we arrived at postmodernism. Now, it's significant to note that two of the philosophers whose works laid the foundations for postmodern thinking, Hume and Kant, um, 
both had serious flaws in their philosophies, uh, in their theories. You'll remember that for Hume, we can only know something to be true if it's either true by definition or if we can observe it to be true. However, this epistemology, this theory, is neither true by definition nor can we observe it to be true. When we apply the limitations on our knowledge which are set by the theory to the theory itself, obviously this theory collapses. Uh, For Kant, we know all things subjectively, but to say that we can only know things subjectively is itself an objective statement. So again, this theory implodes when we apply the theory to itself. So these two legs that postmodernism stands on collapse. Nevertheless, some Christians have embraced postmodernism completely. They call themselves emergent. Well, what are they emerging from? How do we respond to them? Is it all bad, or is some of it maybe beneficial? We're going to talk about these things in our upcoming lessons in our series called Deconstructing the Deconstructors. I hope you guys stick around for it. It's going to be a very helpful, very insightful study. I'm excited to get it going. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening today. You guys have an awesome Thanksgiving. Oh, and by the way, if any of you are having problems downloading our podcasts, I've received emails from a few of you saying that uh, for some reason iTunes had missed giving you several lessons. Uh, We didn't miss any lessons. You can go back and find all the lessons uh, either on iTunes by going to our page on iTunes or by going to our website, www.biblestudypodcasts.org. You can find them on there. Anyway, God bless you guys. Thanks for listening today. Keep growing closer to Jesus. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus.